Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. My name is Seyrun. I live in Reykjavik, Iceland. I read The Guardian every morning. I realize that this is something that I would like to pay for. It's a service I value. It's journalism I respect. The Guardian brings me the quality I like. So I realized, hey, this is something I, I should be a part of. Hello, my name is Brian and I live in Norwich. I decided to become a supporter of the Guardian newspaper because I like the quality of its journalism. And I also felt it was time to make a stand because I'm getting tired of the journalism I'm seeing in other newspapers that are owned by rich owners where there is a lot of bias into their editorials. I hope this inspires some of you to become supporters too and in your own small way, make a stand. Hi, my name is Wesley. I live in uh, Utrecht in the Netherlands. And I recently decided to become a Guardian supporter because it's well, one of the few news sources that I feel is still delivering accurate news. You know, it feels like I can trust the Guardian. For me, that's, I think, the most important thing. And especially when they said we don't want to do too much advertisements and we don't want to become dependent upon other people can, that can manipulate the news, I felt that it was good to support our democracy. If, like Sigrun, Wesley and Brian, you would like to join the growing number of readers who support our independent journalism, then go to gu.com slash support slash podcast. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to We Need to Talk About the impact of artificial intelligence, the latest of our monthly podcasts in which Guardian journalists and industry experts delve into a topic suggested by Guardian supporters and answer their questions on it. I'm Lee Glendening, Executive Editor for Membership at The Guardian, and we've been urged by many of our supporters to have this conversation about artificial intelligence, to explore the impact these technologies might have on jobs across various industries and on our personal health care, what threats arise from AI and the accelerating industry driving developments, and how these threats can be best ameliorated. Some of you wanted us to discuss psychological and ethical issues, exploring the trust that we're placing in AI, how the physical manifestation of AI affects our interaction, and what happens, this was a very popular question, when AI goes wrong. Well, I'm joined by a panel of particularly human experts to dive into this matter. We have Tamandra Harkness, broadcaster and author of Big Data, Does Size Matter? Maria Rosaria Tadeo, a research fellow and the deputy director of Digital Ethics Lab of the Oxford Internet Institute at the University of Oxford and fellow of the Turing Institute. And finally, Ian Sample, the Guardian science editor, who's long investigated and written about artificial intelligence, including a recent column on AI researchers signing a pledge against killer robots. 
Hello to the panel today. So let's hear first from Guardian supporters Joni and Gordon with questions relating to AI's impact on the work landscape. This is Joni Roylance from Portland, Oregon in the United States. I work in consulting on the topic of AI readiness, and so I'd like to explore the question, what is inherently human? In other words, what are the things these technologies should not and cannot do or replace? This is Gordon Mullen from Stanick, currently calling from New Zealand. Given that AI is good at spotting patterns and optimizing resources, do you feel that we should use it for replacing local governments and councils? So let's start with Joni's question. I like the idea of delving into the question of what is actually inherently human. Are there jobs that this technology should not or cannot do or replace, Tamandra? Well, definitely, is the short answer. The inherently human question is a really interesting one, and we all have quite instinctive answers to that, like interacting with other human beings is something we tend to want humans to do, and things like making moral judgments. We want a human to be morally responsible. I agree totally with, with Amanda. We want to have like a, a human being in charge or in the loop or morally responsible for the actions that these agents do. But I think the question there is also like, what do we delegate? What tasks do we delegate to AI? Is it correct to delegate to AI to give you a haircut or take care of your children or choose whether I get a mortgage or not? Um, so it's about what kind of task we delegate and how much do we delegate? Because one way of answering the question is that we should use and deploy AI to support human flourishing, to support human creativity, to free us from tasks which are tedious or risky, so that we have more time for become who we want to become and, and get into a better place. And in terms of the jobs, there are different analyses, and they change a little bit. And of course, the forecast cannot really be precise as technology evolves and more opportunity becomes available, but also more limits. But it's interesting to consider, for example, that there was a report um, which said that by 2020, there will be 1.7 million robots deployed in industrial plant. And that's an important fact because it shows there will be a lot of people who will have to be reskilled or redeployed somewhere else. And I'm a philosopher, so I think a bit uh, on the long term. How do we redesign societies in which there is no need anymore for human labor? A job is not just something that you do for a living. You also do it for defining yourself. It's something that shapes you as a human being. So what does that mean for humanity when we don't have to work anymore? But, so how do we define ourselves? I don't have an answer. It's <laughs> just a bunch of questions. That in relation to Gordon's question, he actually told us he expects a not-too-distant future where it would be irresponsible to allow anything but AI to do research allocation in a local council, for example, um, partly because his local council was doing such a poor job. But do you agree? And um, could AI be better suited to those sorts of tasks? I thought that was a really interesting question. I wondered how tongue-in-cheek he was being or how serious. It's not usually about, here's a great planet-wide artificial intelligence it's usually about the small things and the efficient systems but then they creep in and they start making decisions which are not just technical if you think about smart cities where this great vision everything's connected and while well, data is collected everywhere and all the transport systems join up and are terribly efficient and energy systems switch on and off very efficiently and it sounds lovely but embedded in that are a lot of political decisions about priorities and do we prioritize saving energy over the ease of getting people around for example do we prioritize 
efficiency over privacy. All these things are political questions and that's what you need people in the mix for. That's the difference between the smart city, which kind of assumes that the city's smart and we're all quite stupid, and you know Aristotle's polis, where you have the political animal, which is man, uh, humankind these days, actually talking about, well, what is a good life and what do we want and disagreeing about that and coming to decisions. And that is, I suppose, something that worries me, that not that we'll get the kind of the massive AI dictator, but that we will just hand over a lot of small decisions without thinking, actually, there are priorities, there are values underlying these decisions. And we've just decided that efficiency is the overall goal and that somehow an AI will find the best outcome without really getting stuck into talking about what do we mean by best I think you're right, but the question there is how do we use it? So at the same time, we'll be missing out on a huge opportunity if we could rely on AI to understand what are the possible best scenarios, for example. So I think there is a a way of understanding the use of this technology which can be misleading. And it's the idea that because it's autonomous, then it takes all the decisions. That's because we want to deploy it in this way. It's our mistake. It's not the AI uh, that should be used in this way. So going back to the question, would it be useful to have a system that gives us very accurate forecast of what will be the situation in 10 years in terms of parking? Would it be good? Yes, indeed. Should the system decide then what do we do with the parking? That's another question. And I would say that that's when the human being or the humankind should, should, should take the lead. It's about leading the technology and not being led by the technology. And that's the risk uh, that I think we should be aware. But we also should be aware not to demonize AI as this uh, huge evil or powerful devil which is coming upon us and will kill us all and destroy the humankind. (laughs) Not going to happen. We're not there. The mistakes are possible, but these are going to be human mistakes. I I think that's absolutely right. The the idea that AI is going to take control is nonsense. What's going to happen is that we are going to stop taking control and go, oh, I can't be bothered to make this decision, or this is so controversial, or I don't want to have to carry the can for this mistake, so I'm going to shove that onto an AI, which actually some human being is programmed and fed data into but as you say they're actually not autonomous at all i think there's a problem in seeing these systems as kind of magical you know if you just said oh what if your local council was just going to use a computer program to try and understand how traffic flows through your local area how um, the roadworks could be placed to make sure it still flows more efficiently how parking could be allocated more efficiently even divvied up over different times and things like that you go yeah of course I really hope you're doing that because it'll save us all money you don't need to get in a big consultancy firm or multiple consultancy firms to do it get it all processed then we'll have a, a meeting a public meeting about it we'll understand what's been done and we can make decisions over what as a group serves us best what defines the best solution as Tamandra was saying and I think AI has a a great opportunity there you know we we all know how our local areas are inefficient in almost anything we look at (laughs) and it doesn't seem beyond the realm of possibility to me that an AI system suitably um, sort of coded could help out in that situation but I don't think we should see it as oh the AI is going to work in this mysterious way and make decisions we don't understand we'll just have to kind of go oh let's take a chance and go with it it's just a computer program and we can understand it analyze it, and then discuss what to do 
It's just advisory in that form. What do you think are the skills that will be the most in demand in this new world that we're talking about here when we think about AI often being labelled as the fourth industrial revolution? I'm tempted by tongue in my cheek to say we've got an ageing population and increasing technology, so explaining how to use the technology to half the population will be very in demand. That's uh, that's me being a little bit cynical. Um, the, the ones that will be less in demand will be the very routine things. And, and this is where I think AI is repeating what robotics has already done for industry, that there are very few jobs now that rely on sheer physical muscle power. And the ones that do tend to also rely on skill and creativity. And in the same way as mechanisation has taken over those, I think AI will take over the very routine jobs like data entry and accounting, and but not the ones that actually involve thinking about how to use it and why we're using it and more strategic level jobs. I'm a bit worried now I'm coming across a bit of a Luddite. I actually think we should embrace a lot of this automation much more because one of the ways we could help ourselves have higher productivity and a more growing economy and therefore be in a position to generate new exciting industries would be in fact to have more automation new jobs could be created and it's really hard to predict what just as in you know the start of the 20th century nobody predicted that aviation would be an international industry that employs millions of people directly and indirectly they just thought oh there are those rich crazy people flying those machines around again I think it's really hard to point and say, here's a skill that you should definitely try and develop because your job will be safe. Being flexible, Mm. creative, adaptable, imaginative. (laughs) All those vital things. All those vital (laughs) things, which also, by coincidence, make you an interesting human being. (laughs) We tend to think of certain jobs being safe because of how hard it is for existing computer systems, either to compute what needs to be computed or to enact what needs to be enacted. So, you know, it's quite hard to get a robot to come and fix a broken sink because plumbing is a very tricky, dexterous job. Now, what that misses out is that you can change the job. It's not only that you have to make the computing and the robotics all fit things that humans do, because all of those jobs exist because humans are the way they are, and all those jobs are designed to be done by humans at the moment. You don't then have to go and design a robot to do it exactly the way a human does it. I mean, it's exactly why a driverless car won't just drive the way a human drives. It will use, hopefully, a lot more intelligence that's actually out on the street rather than in the car. It won't work the same way. So you could actually see how a lot of these jobs that people think are completely safe because, oh, it's really hard to get a robot to do that. Well, you actually change what the job is, although it achieves the same aim, i.e. a working sink or something like that. And I think there's another issue that comes up with looking at how AI might impact on jobs is that people assume that an AI will have to be as good as a human at a particular job, or even, I mean, let's not worry about general intelligence for now, but a good, as good as a human at a particular job to take that job. But that's, I think, wrong as well, because if you're, say, in a call centre and you're fielding calls from the public and, say, 5% of those calls go through to some higher supervisor because they're actually a really tricky thing to deal with, if you can get a, an AI system that's, say, 90% as good as you, and say it puts through X percent higher calls to a number of supervisors, if it's cheap as chips, it'll still take your job because it's not as good as you, but it'll still take your job because overall it makes sense economically. So I think those things add 
and loads of others that I haven't mentioned, feed enormous uncertainty into this whole idea of what jobs will go, which jobs won't go. Just a final thing is that humans seem very good at creating work for themselves. And, you know, the Industrial Revolution was painful and dramatic, but I don't think people actually ended up working much less. And I doubt we will all have these lives of leisure when AI comes fully into sort of society because we just seem to be very good at giving ourselves work to do. So even though certain work can be replaced we just create more? The descriptions of jobs you can see on job sites now they would have been meaningless 10 years ago, five years ago. So we're constantly creating new types of job and giving them crazy titles but they're real jobs in some respect. I mean, whether they're meaningful or not is another question, but they're real jobs. And I think that'll continue. We'll find other things to do that probably aren't just painting and writing poetry. <laughs> well, that's the other thing, is the idea that robots will just take all the jobs. Uh, AI will be doing our jobs and there'll be nothing for us to do. Kind of assumes that we are happy with things as they are, but there's always something more that we want, which is you know, why there is a job today of Guardian podcast producer, because we suddenly went, hey, we like listening to interesting stuff. And we've now got technology, that we can walk around and listen to interesting stuff while we're jogging or commuting. Why isn't there a thing called podcasts? And lo and behold, here there is a thing called podcasts. There's always more stuff that we can decide that would enhance our lives. And if we can work out ways of producing that, then we will. But the boring, dangerous, dirty, difficult work will be done by machine. Okay, let's move on now and hear from Guardian supporter Mark on the physical manifestation of AI. My name is Mark Patterson. I'm Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Pittsburgh. And my question is about embodiments of AI. We're going to spend more and more time working with and living with physical manifestations of AI. So we're already talking to speakers and pods in our houses, like Alexa and Google Home and the HomePod, for example. When we deal with care homes, for example, for the elderly in Japan and Britain, we're kind of used to the idea of Paro, the robot seal, or a kind of cartoonish instantiation of a body like a, the robo bear in a care home in Japan to kind of lift patients, for example. We're also aware of the very strange, creepy forms of robotics like Hiroshi Ishiguro and the very lifelike recreation of his daughter Erika as an android at the other end of the spectrum. According to our cultural upbringing, we have very different relationships with lifelike objects. It's not so creepy to Japanese people, for example, to have a robot dog and say goodbye to it and give it a burial and send off a Shinto religious ritual. So does the form of embodiment actually change the way we speak to AI? And is this gonna be a help or a hindrance to us as consumers, but also in the workplace? We start by looking at some of the examples that Mark gave there for the people that have not heard of them. Paro is a soft robot seal that helps comfort those with dementia and helps them feel more socially engaged. Robo Bear is a mechanical, cartoonish, smiling bear created to help look after uh, Japan's ageing population to lift the elderly and otherwise immobile patients from their beds. Um, RoboBear is not really AI, as Mark said, but how particularly is Paro received? And are these robots actually improving the lives of uh, the elderly? And how relevant is Paro's cute and toy-like embodiment in this effect? Paro's, I think the idea is that 
for people for whom an actual pet, like a, a cat or a dog, is not practical or not safe, then you can get some of the same kind of pleasure of interacting with something that responds to you and is furry. And I can see it, but at the same time, it makes me a little bit sad, the idea that in a society where we could all have more time for each other because machines are doing the work, what we instead do is get the machines to spend time with people and mm. keep them company. Mark also mentioned Hiroshi Ishiguro in Japan who creates these lifelike androids, the latest being Erica, who's capable of holding a conversation with humans um, due to a combination of speech generation algorithms and facial recognition technology and infrared sensors um, that allow her to track faces across a room. Um, Ishiguro wants to understand what it is to be human and to connect with others and believes that since we're hardwired to interact with people and place our faith in humans, the more human-like we can make a robot appear, the more open we'll be to sharing our lives with it and perhaps rely on it for our care and other needs. Do you foresee a demand for more lifelike or even human-like AI? And do you think that people better connect and talk differently to a robot when it resembles either a seal or a, a human being? What I think it is, is that we are seeing a trend, which is the one to make AI invisible. So blended in our environment and as interacting with it without knowing that it's there, but not being reminded that it's there. So whether that is a speaker in your house or a dog that looks like a dog, uh, but actually it's not a dog, so that you forget that it's AI and you start interacting with it. So I would place this building of robots resembling human beings in this in this trend. It poses a lot of questions. It poses a question of respect of self-determination. AI can nudge us, can nudge us into doing things from, you know, Amazon suggesting the next book you're going to buy to Alexa telling you it's time to go to sleep and so on and so forth. The moment we forget that it's there and it's still nudging us, how are we dealing with our self-determination? At which point it becomes nudging for the better or uh, encroaching upon our effort to become who we want to become. And then there is another question, a question of dignity. Most of these robots that were mentioned in the question are used for people who are in not optimal conditions. So being taken care of by a robot whether it's looking at you like a human being or not. Is this something that diminishes the dignity or the respect of the patient? It's an ethical question. There is no definite answer, perhaps, but it's an interesting one. Uh, how are we respecting this person? And then there is another one, which is these artifacts are collecting data all the time. They are transmitting data all the time. To whom? For what purposes? Uh, to what extent? There is no simple answer, I'm afraid, and that's why I have a job, but... Uh, <laughs> But it's about making these artificial agents more blended in our environment and us becoming less aware that they are there actively shaping us and shaping the environment. I think it's interesting that we seem bent on making intelligence primarily about humans and also about life, about being alive. Like Siri, okay, no one thinks it's a human, but it talks to you, it has an accent and it has intonations and things like that. And we don't seem to be content with just having it as just a computer program that is in our minds categorically never living doesn't have any emotions can't suffer you know all the rest of it it's interesting i think when you start putting ai systems into seals and things like that you can make what are essentially cool toys and i'm sure kids would and other people who may be in sort of caring situations might get some comfort from those like kids do from teddy bears and things like that 
I have a question about the value and, and the, the the risks of putting them into anything that's like a human body, even if that's actually an avatar. Because I think if you have a commander-like robot shell with an AI in, I'm going to be talking to it, and I will assume it has Tamandra's intelligence and breadth of intelligence and type of emotional responses and stuff like that. And I will, so I'll be overestimating its capabilities by a long shot. And any any AI that's in a robot today. People are so easily fooled and so easily anthropomorphize things that they, I think, could quite easily trust something where it really shouldn't be trusted. When you build into that how AI systems are coming along that can read your emotional state, if you have, say, an avatar on Amazon that is a human avatar chatting away to you, it can pick up your emotional state, let's say, and then decide, oh, I know exactly the sort of thing you're likely to buy for exactly what sort of price – now, because you're vulnerable, I, I, yeah, it's not happening, but I worry about that sort of thing being on the horizon. And I think the more they are embodied into human form, even if it's just an avatar, that leaves vulnerable people more vulnerable to that kind of exploitation. What about if they are being used to combat loneliness? To what extent do you think artificial empathy is possible? I think this is very worrying because I think on a superficial level, the thing you were just talking about, like recognising the signs of emotions, is it's primitive now, but I think it will improve rapidly. But it is a very superficial level because machines can't do what we do when we recognise emotions in other people, unless we're a psychopath. We we both kind of use our experience and learn and go, oh, look, that thing, you know, she's crinkling up her eyes and her mouth. That means she's smiling. That means she's sympathetic or amused or happy. Uh, we do that but we also we are projecting what we feel so we're thinking oh well that person is probably feeling roughly what I feel when I am happy or whatever now machines can't do that because they don't have feelings so all a machine can ever do is analyze you from the outside and turn you into data and say you know your happiness reading is 7.143 etc etc there's no empathy going on but also that's reducing us that's reducing us to things that can be read and turned into data your emotions don't only consist of your outward signs and of statistical patterns that mean when you are logging on at two in the morning and your emotional state is depressed and vulnerable then you're going to mail order whiskey and country and western cds or whatever i don't know i'm guessing (laughs) but you know that, but that's not only who you are. That that's a particular, quite superficial part of you. What's what's going on inside you that's brought you to this state? What are the changes that are happening in you because you're going through this? What are the decisions you're going to make that are going to change your life? Machines can't understand that. This is actually another reason to worry about making robots in human forms. That we will start not only to think of the robots as human, but start to think of humans as robots. Start to think of ourselves just as machines that can be. Re- and understood in data and that can be nudged in the right direction the right input gets the right output that's the thing I think that worries me about artificial intelligence that of us thinking about it as equivalent to humans that what we're doing is not only bigging up what artificial intelligence can do but we're also reducing what we think human beings are okay let's move on now and hear from Guardian supporter Rob on AI within healthcare I'm Rob Brisk I work as a specialty doctor in cardiology in the Southern Health and Social Care Trust of Northern Ireland. 
I'm also currently undertaking a PhD at Ulster University in artificial intelligence within acute medicine. And specifically, we're aiming to use something called reinforcement learning to train a resusibot, if you like, which is going to lay the ground, hopefully, for artificial intelligence-based clinical systems to undertake the kind of sequential decision-making process that is required to look after patients who have become acutely unwell and are actively deteriorating. I think this technology has enormous potential to revolutionize modern healthcare. But the thing that really mars my excitement about the arrival of this technology within frontline medicine, which is where I spend most of my waking hours, is that the lack of understanding of AI among clinical staff is hugely disempowering for both themselves and also for their patients. There's already a general mistrust of all things computer-based, certainly among NHS clinicians who still daily suffer the effects of appallingly managed IT implementation. But I suspect it's probably a more universal phenomenon than that. However, I believe the only reason that we in healthcare need to fear AI is if that as medical professionals, we allow our ongoing ignorance to force us into the role of passive observers, while tech companies who hold the interests of their shareholders above those of our patients call all the shots. We as frontline healthcare workers are better placed than anyone. In fact, we're perhaps the only people in any sort of position to identify how this incredible new technology can be best used to improve the well-being of those with whose care we're charged. And we therefore have a duty, I think, to inform ourselves so that we can do just that. Ian, you've looked into how AI is transforming the NHS. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what do you think of Rob's concern that frontline clinicians are disempowering themselves by not learning of AI's potential and instead allowing, as he says, tech companies to call the shots? So I'm going to try and see this from a glass half full perspective. I think he raises a really important point, but I think there's an advantage to it. I don't think a week goes by when we don't see some paper or other which is reporting an AI system that is better by X percent than a trained clinician at diagnosing a particular rare form of disease. You know, they're coming along thick and fast. And a lot of that is because of pattern recognition in image analysis. You just train an algorithm on a load of images. And these are the disease ones, these are healthy ones, find the difference. And unsurprisingly, I suppose, the, the system learns to find patterns that we don't, humans often don't see. I think that there are also some some very sort of well-known in the community examples of these systems going wrong, where patients have been recommended to be sent home by an AI system, whereas what should have happened is they, they should have gone into ITU. Having that experience of the NHS IT system being so lousy and having that problematic scepticism that Rob sees could work in their favour because... I hope that that might counter the issue of becoming too reliant on these systems. I know I really am struggling to see this as a glass half full thing. He has put his finger on a really important point where just reluctance to accept these systems is damaging to people. I think AI could have tremendous impact, beneficial impact in health. As you say, just in diagnosis, but not just in diagnosis, also in preparing treatment plans. If we can get hold of enough data to say, look, a person with your medical background and your genetic makeup and what have you does best if they are given this particular course of treatment. I think that thing could work wonders if you can start pulling data around the world on that and training systems. If you reject it out of hand, then obviously that's a bad thing. But I think having a lot of scepticism is going to counter that really easy thing where you just fall into, oh, I'll go with what the AI says because all the research says that it's 20% better than my judgment. So I'm going to keep my fingers crossed. I suppose one of the issues it also raises is about patient trust in AI technology. 
how do you think this could be overcome? It, it's quite hard to disentangle actually from the from the patient privacy issue. I, I think one of the reasons people are reluctant to go with these is that they don't necessarily want their data to go into the system, which could have amazing results for research and for, for improved treatments in the future. And and that really comes back to that same issue of trust, which is who do you trust with your data and who do you trust to make the decisions? But the other thing I think comes back to what we were talking about earlier of the, the kind of moral accountability, if you like. If a decision is going to be made that has big consequences for us, we want a human being there who can explain why they came to that decision and say well look having weighed everything up and based on my experience I think this is the best course of action and that's not just because we want to be able to go back to them and say why did you say that but also because they they know you in a way that a machine can't so they might have the imagination to see that if they say, well, look, I'm sorry, but I've looked at this scan and you've got a brain tumour and here, are, this is the prognosis and here are the treatment options, they can actually see it from a human point of view of what the consequences might be for you and your life and your family and all those, the big messy context, which a machine can't. But having said that, I would totally want the doctor to have use of the AI and to be able to look and see, I mean, just like you wouldn't, you wouldn't want a doctor to go without x-rays or blood tests. In China, for example, where there is a big problem to provide diagnosis and then care to people coming from the countryside, major hospitals have resorted to AI for cancer diagnosis because that makes the process much quicker and much more efficient. Then these people are sent back to their province and they get care there. And we also know that there was a recent study, when you combine AI and human expertise, as you were saying, Tamara, the error rate for breast cancer um, diagnosis drops down of 85%. It's a lot of more cancer identified much quicker and much sooner than in other cases. And that's a good example of the way we should rely on AI. It's not about AI making the decision. It's not about AI informing the patient of whatever problem that has been found. It's about a tool that a human being should use. But the question prompts a very other a very interesting issue which is the training the idea that we just use ai like dumped on the desks of people it, it is not realistic we, we we get training to drive cars we get training to do zumba classes i used to work at starbucks i got training to use a starbucks coffee machine there is an education program to, to be established whenever ai is going to be used in relevant context and i'm quite confident that education will make the fears and the skepticism go away as much as it's rational to do so. You're listening to We Need to Talk About the Impact of Artificial Intelligence. Coming up in the second half, we discuss bias and trust in AI, the threat of autonomous weapon systems, and what happens when AI goes wrong. Where would you look for a pirate? The sea? The top floor of an apartment block? London's Portobello Road? New York City? When it comes to pirate radio, the answer is all of the above. Join me, Jordan Erica Weber, for this week's episode of Chips with Everything. I'd like to say that we went to the House of Commons and it was lovely and there were open arms and they all offered us a cup of tea and a biscuit. But that didn't happen. It was not like that. People were a bit fearful of us and really it's because they didn't know us. Where I chat to a DJ from the 1980s London pirate radio station Dread Broadcasting Corporation and a radio producer from New York City who has created a pirate radio sound map of Brooklyn. It's really like a de facto community radio service that has sort of gone beyond what the regulations allow but what the communities themselves desire to have. 
to have a listen, head over to theguardian.com slash podcasts or search Chips With Everything on your favorite podcast app. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You're listening to We Need to Talk About the Impact of Artificial Intelligence. Let's hear now from Guardian supporter Ansgar Kona with a question of trust. Hi, this is Ansgar Kona. I'm a senior research fellow at the University of Nottingham. We do research on how digital media are affecting society, and especially we're looking at the use of algorithms to mediate the information that people are seeing online. In the space of algorithms, especially AI systems, there's a lot of concern about lack of transparency. The system takes in big data sets from various different dimensions and looks at patterns in that, generates results from that. You can check for accuracy based on looking at whether it matches results from the past, but you don't actually have a model of how the system works. You don't have an explanation for why it came to the kind of prediction or categorization that it made. So this is causing some concerns that we're really moving to a situation where we're just looking at correlations of past things and we're saying, well, if something was sort of like this in the past, we assume it's going to be like this in the future again. So that's why I'm posing the question, are we moving back, actually, to a faith-based kind of approach to running our society, that we're just putting our faith in statistics and correlations and machine learning algorithms, where we take out the ability to question whether the decisions are correct, because we don't have a model description of why this decision is being made. Maria Rosaria, are we putting too much trust in AI, in black box AI as it's sometimes referred to, because we can understand what goes in and what comes out, but we don't understand what goes on inside? And this is even for the people who built the platforms. What what do you think are the ramifications of this? Well, it, it is true. It's very difficult to explain or understanding how many instances of AI, and we trust technology, not just AI, digital technologies, too easily sometimes. We delegate sensitive tasks and we, we, we are reluctant to control our questions. A bit less trust would be much more wiser, but it's, it's possible to, to have a, a better grounded trust. There are mechanisms that we have to put in place, though, oversight mechanisms. We might not be able to understand what is the inner clockwork of an AI systems, but we might want to have a, a way of overlooking and looking to the whole process and how it impacts society and whether that's fine with us or not. Do we want a system that biases tall brunette women versus short blonde women when it comes to mortgage? Uh, if we don't like that, well, then it sh- doesn't matter how AI does that discrimination. We should just make sure that that doesn't happen again by not deploying that kind of system. It shows that we require perhaps post-hoc measures, oversight, auditing mechanisms. 
which prompt another question. What kind of values, what kind of principles we don't want to negotiate, we don't want to compromise uh, upon? Uh, and this is a question that gets different answers depending on where you, uh, when you pose it because there are different cultural values, different moral values. So we have to be prepared to a kind of pluralism of approaches to, to what is acceptable or not. But going back to the question of, uh, of trust, we've been giving our trust quite easily to technologies, digital technologies in the past uh, decade. But I don't think it's a matter of saying that we're going backwards, that we uh, should get rid of trust. Trust is a fundamental component of social interactions. It's because we trust each other that we can all do different things. Otherwise, I would have to have a medical degree, uh, degree in media communication and, you know, be able to check my car and everything else. So trust is essential to delegate. It's a matter of understanding how do we decide to, to trust. A matter of understanding that these technologies are not for free, are not entirely transparent, and so give our trust more wisely or more critically that's certainly something that we should start thinking about. Ansgar described this very well because we're very keen to be able to predict the world. It's a very unpredictable world we live in. And the idea that some kind of technology will predict what's going to happen and tell us what's best for us is really seductive, I think. And, and again, out of all proportion with what the AI is actually capable of. But we're very comforted by the fact that things come at us with this absurd precision of, of exact numbers and uh, and that it's technological because it feels somehow more objective and more reliable than if it was just, I don't know, the, the four of us sitting in a room going, well, we think this is what's going to happen. There should be, hopefully, independent people who understand how particular algorithms make decisions. Like, say, if a plane crashes, you send in a bunch of investigators, you get the information about what went wrong, and then hopefully you share that with all the other people who have similar aeroplanes try and avoid it happening again. I don't know whether that will happen with driverless cars or what have you but you you would hope so i think what's also interesting is an issue that maria rosario raised around the increasing invisibility of, of certain ai systems and comes back to this point that the reader mentions around us becoming this more sort of faith-based society around around whether we just follow recommendations from these systems whether they're obviously going to be in some sense perceived as good recommendations if you have a bunch of data that's taken on, um, you know, your behavior compared to a bunch of other people, well, they like going to this restaurant after that restaurant. Why don't you try it? And I wonder if we'll just start going along with everything that's suggested and that we lose our kind of agency, our independence. And then if you get to that situation where, look, I just play all the stuff that it serves up. I watch all the movies it serves up. I go to the restaurants it serves up and I travel around my car to where it tells me to go and I take the route that it plans for me. Where does this progress come from? Because you're all just feeding back into what happened in the past. And I don't know where that goes. Maybe nowhere of value or interest, but it's a worry. I think good recommender systems themselves can very easily make us lazy. And that might be a narrowing of our sort of potential, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Let's hear from Birgit, a Guardian supporter researching autonomous weapons systems. I'm Dr. Birgit Shippers, and I am a visiting research fellow at the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute at Queen's University, Belfast. And I'm currently conducting research on the ethics and politics of autonomous weapon systems. And I'm especially interested in the threats that they pose to human rights and what kind of ethical and political responses are required to make sure that developments in artificial intelligence, developments in robotics, do not infringe upon the rights that are guaranteed under international and domestic human rights law. 
in 2016, a police force in Dallas, Texas, used a robot to shoot a suspected criminal. It was really the first time that it was driven home that autonomous weapon systems, that roboticized systems, can also be deployed in domestic contexts, in domestic law enforcement, not just in international contexts. They can be used by state agencies, but they can also be used by non-state actors, either legally or illegally, either legitimately or illegitimately. They can be abused by states. They can be used for criminal game. Demis Hassabas at Google DeepMind and Elon Musk at the US rocket company SpaceX were in July this year among more than 2,400 signatories to a pledge intending to deter military firms and nations from building these lethal autonomous weapon systems, also known as LAWS. They call for new regulations on how such AI weapons are developed and state that the introduction of autonomous technology would be tantamount to a third revolution in warfare following the development of gunpowder and nuclear weapons. Vladimir Putin has also predicted future wars would be fought by countries using drones, saying when one party's drones are destroyed by drones of another, it will have no choice but to surrender. What's the existing framework of governance for AI technology and is there much international state agreement? The, the question is very interesting, uh, uh, but there are a few things that which uh, need to be set on uh, by the records. Autonomy motion, that's the way it's called, uh, the use of robotic weapons on the battlefield, which are fully autonomous. We are nowhere there. There is commitment from the UN to ban these weapons uh, and there is reluctance from leading states to really pursue this kind of development because is perceived really unethical from militaries and problematic at the international level. And the robot that she mentions is not an autonomous robot, it's a robot that is remote controlled. And that changes a lot the question we want to pose, because the question we're posing is, should an artificial agent, fully autonomous, be in charge of deciding whether to kill a human being or not? This is not the case of the Dallas robot, and this is what we're trying to discuss here, and this is what is banned or trying to be banned by the UN. Having said this, there are, there is a whole set of artificial agents, weapons, not kinetic, not on the ground, not emotions, that are being developed and which are as potentially disruptive, as dangerous as conventional weapons. And there is less attention dedicated to these weapons, and I wonder why, because our societies, we rely on information infrastructures. And when we think about AI capable to identify a problem with our information infrastructure and target a problem to put that infrastructure out of use, water supply, air traffic control system, doing significant damage, then we should also start thinking about how do we regulate the use of this weapon, who's in charge, who's legally responsible, whether we should regulate this kind of, of weapons. The answer to the question, how do we go about artificial agents deciding whether or not to take a human life? The answer cannot be other than it shouldn't be allowed. But there is all new emerging pressing problems which we should focus on, which have to do with the cyber weapons more than the uh, robotic weapons. I just wanted to drive home this point that Maria Rosario said about in, in the question itself, which was about this 2016 event in Texas. The, the reader said it's it, an autonomous robot that, that shot the spectre criminal. As Maria Rosario said, it was a remote controlled robot that was driven up to where a sniper was and the robot was carrying some a pound of c4 explosive and then humans triggered the c4 explosive to blow up near the sniper and this was after a 45 minute gun battle in which five police officers were killed the question that raises is more about the militarization of the police rather than an issue of autonomous lethal weaponry but 
coming to the, the point of actual these laws, these lethal autonomous weapons, as, as Maria Rosario is saying, it doesn't seem as if there's an awful lot of desire to create those um, because of all those problems of accountability, of causing bigger problems than you're solving. But I think we should probably talk about what the motivations might be for doing that. I mean, one reason you may want to do that kind of thing is if you think of the kind of uh, predator drones that are taking out terrorists left, right and center using missiles in certain parts of the world, those can be hacked and they can be brought down by interrupting the communications between the place where it's flown from and the predator, the, the drone itself. And so if you can just send something off that isn't actually controlled from base, then you don't have that worry. You can say, okay, this is the type of target. This is the person or the individuals we need you to go for. You have the weaponry. If you make a, whatever, 99% accurate recognition. I think that's the kind of argument that people would say is there for autonomous weapons. But certainly everyone in, in the governments I've spoken to say, we always want a human in the loop, i.e. being someone who will ultimately take responsibility for that decision, come what may. And I hope that is rigid. I don't know, if, Rizara, if you think that is rigid and will be a line that won't be crossed. So it, it is an important line. And while I know that on the cyber side of things, they try to shift from the human in the loop to a human on the loop. That means from someone who's making the decision to someone who's looking at what the machines decides. But that's just the cyber side of things. So it's oftentimes something that doesn't cause any casualties or any physical damage. When it comes to the, the, the combat, the battlefield, killing uh, lives, in the context of conflicts, international conflicts. So we're not talking about sabotage. We're not talking about the things that go under the uh, behind the curtains. There's a strong limit there. And the limit is political. No politician wants to be on the newspaper front page for having sent an autonomous robot to kill uh, a bunch of people somewhere else in the world. But also from the militaries. There is an ethics of militaries, which is strong. Uh, it's an ethics of value, it's an ethics of courage, of braveness, and it's something that within the culture, as much as one might appreciate it or not, is quite is quite strong. And there is also a, a, an issue of responsibility, the attribution of responsibility. The coupling the action totally from the source of the responsibility is perceived as something that is too much. Who is, who is it, the fourth star general who is responsible if, if the missiles is dropped on the wrong place? What kind of things? Military actions on the battlefields, they are the outcome of carefully defined strategies. There are principles which dictate how much risk you can take, what kind of casualties, to what extent, what is the proportionate of the uh, gain with respect to the damage or the risk that you, you take. Um, and so in that context, there is a lot of human involvement, which I don't foresee being foregone at some point, at any real recent point, let's say. But what about other groups? I mean, is there a danger that terrorist groups might take advantage of ubiquitous drones, face recognition, and they can already get hold of explosives? But that's the risk with technology. Technology is malleable, especially digital technology. So you build it for some purposes, and then someone can uh, take advantage of it uh, in other ways. We have to remember, though, that despite uh, AI being so pervasive, despite the level of sophistication being so high, it requires a lot of expertise and a lot of money. So it would be hard for a minor or small group uh, of criminals to uh, be competitive with a state, a big state, uh, at the same level. Having said this, there are autonomous submarines uh, being developed by the US, I guess, at this point, because there is a lot of automation being deployed and developed by militaries for other purposes, which are not to battlefields. And so autonomous submarines are very good because, you know, you send a bunch of people under the oceans, it's a risky job and it's problematic, so better if a robot can do it. 
too bad that people who deal with drugs and cocaine have discovered that it's very useful because you can ship a lot of drugs under the oceans. And if the submarine gets, uh, is discovered, nobody is liable to go to jail because nobody's in the submarine. And this is a good example of the fact that, you know, uh, there are possible misuses or evil uses of the same technologies. But that, that means that we have to have better policies in place, better procedures, better way of designing these technologies to reduce the risks. Time for our last Guardian supporter question in this month's pod. Here's Jen on what happens when AI goes wrong. So my name's Jen Shaw and I'm calling from the Forest of Dean. And my question is really about the kind of automation aspect of artificial intelligence and really looking at our businesses prepared for automation. So lots of businesses and organisations are introducing lots of robots and bots into their workforce. So humans and robots are going to work together. So what happens when something goes wrong? We all know it's really new technology and things often um, happen that are unexpected. So how are businesses prepared to monitor and, and govern these bots at scale, particularly when they're kind of automating certain tasks? I know RPA and robotic process automation is quite a hot topic. But at what point does a human step in and what point should a human step in? When we think about robotic process automation, what is your opinion on how we hold AI tech accountable when things go wrong? Well, we've all kind of agreed, I think, that certainly in this room that there should be a human who's accountable. But I guess the question is how and at what stage? Because one problem with artificial intelligence is that you've put a process in between the people who kind of decide what the task is and how you're going to approach the task and how the task gets done and then the people who deal with the with the outcomes with the consequences which makes me think there's probably no one-size-fits-all answer to that, that you need to really look at, well, who decided what this AI was trying to do, who decided what questions it was going to ask and what data it was going to get, and then who decided how to implement the outputs of the artificial intelligence. And you kind of need to look at all those points, I think, when deciding who who is accountable and what to do about when things go wrong and how to make sure that it's not going to happen again. The artificial agents can now be held morally responsible. Moral responsibility has to do with choice, understanding of what the, the responsibility or, or, or the problem that is being caused and so on and so forth. So it's not about the artificial agent. I also think that the problem of responsibility has, is very complex because AI has shown that the framework that we have for ascribing moral responsibility so far it's not working anymore. We are used to the idea that one agent performs one action and then he or she is responsible for that action. When it comes to AI systems, the action is the result of a distributed agency. It is the software and is the designer of the software, but is the designer of the database, which has been used to train the software, is the user, is the integration of that piece of software with other pieces of software. So it's much more complex a system that we are addressing when we think about the moral responsibility of AI. And in response to the system, we don't have a conceptual framework yet. So we don't have a concept of distributed responsibility. That's what we need. Understanding that everybody is accountable, in terms of the human side of everybody, for the actions that these agents perform. The example I usually give uh, is autonomous car. Different pieces of software, different hardware. And at some point, there is an update of the software controlling the air conditioning. And all is fine. Um, too bad that Perhaps there is an, an, an interaction between that software and the engine that causes problems and someone dies out of it. Uh, who's responsible? 
it is not the driver, well, not alone. It is the maker, uh, not alone. It is the, the guy who updated the air conditioning system. Yes, but what about the software that controls the engine? So I think this is a good case of what we call the, um, the conceptual revolution that the AI or digital technologies are bringing. They are changing reality by posing new phenomena, new cases, which require new ways of thinking to solve them and to address them. And I was just going to say, I don't think we're anywhere close to having good enough safety checks on systems before they go out into the wild. I mean, whether you're looking at algorithms that are going to be trading on on markets or whether you're looking at systems that might be driving cars. I mean, if you looked at how when airplanes came into public transport, there was sort of relatively slow growth of numbers of aircraft. So when they started falling out the skies, people could kind of, okay, see what went wrong with that. Oh, we didn't, didn't realise that might happen. Then they could start fixing things and all the rest of it. And this becomes a sort of learning process as you go. It feels like with AI systems, not only the, are the incentives incredibly high to get things onto the market really quickly, so you're first, um, it's also happening everywhere at once. And so you have all these systems going out, which... Even if they're tested locally in a lab, that, that testing won't give it a realistic sort of test run, if you like, as, as to what will happen in the real world, because they'll come up against other systems. And, you know, we, there are loads of examples of systems not behaving the way one would expect when they meet other ones. So I feel we're go- always going to be mopping up after these things, which is maybe fine if it's just, you know, you get recommended a duff movie. But when it comes into more serious things, I, 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 I wonder how we're going to ensure that that is safe and works properly so much that you don't get a backlash against it because i think that would be the worst thing is if this technology is delivered in such a ham-fisted way that the public largely reject it i hope you found that conversation really fascinating i'd like to thank the panel tamandra harkness maria rosaria Tadeo, and the guardians ian sample and of course all the guardian supporters who provided our questions and shared their thoughts keep an eye out for our next podcast call out soon and if you'd like to email us with your thoughts on what we should tackle you can do that at we need to talk about at theguardian.com i'm lee Lendening, and we need to talk about the impact of artificial intelligence was produced by Stuart silver thanks for listening until next month goodbye For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice. New research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.